Jerry wanted us to publish it. Oh, really? Well, naturally. Anyway, I turned it down. Why? Oh, not much more to say on that subject, really, is there? What do you consider the subject to be? Betrayal. No, it isn't. <laughs> isn't it? Well, what is it then? I haven't finished it yet. I'll let you know. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 102, Back to Cole's Choice. What are we going to be discussing today? We are discussing one of my all-time favorites, Betrayal, from 1983, and that's directed by David Jones, who was primarily a theater director, and it stars Ben Kingsley, Patricia Hodge, and Jeremy Irons, and it was adapted by Harold Pinter from his play of the same name from 1978. It's about the seven-year extramarital affair of a gallery owner and a literary agent, with the agent being the best friend of the gallery owner's husband. It's actually an autobiographical story from Pinter, being based on the affair he had with Joan Bakewell while being married to Vivian Merchant. One of the big reasons that it's notable is because of its innovative chronological structure. It's composed of nine sequences that run in reverse order, beginning with the lovers meeting a couple of years after their relationship has ended, and actually concluding with the scene in which he first declares his feelings for her. Now, a lot was made of the gimmick of structure at the time. You don't have that obstacle, though. You saw it much later, this time being the first time, right? So you don't have that baggage. As a result, did it feel like as much of a trick to you, something to liven up this stodgy device of a love triangle, because that's an idea that's common to the point of banality, yet this film avoids the usual pitfalls associated with that topic, and I think this structure is one of the primary ways that it manages that. What about you? I definitely had no baggage going in, only in that I'm a theater lover, so I'm kind of predisposed to be into those sorts of different structures, and I really don't get why people complained about it at the time, or still do, the biggest question I had going in was, do we know in advance that this works in reverse as we're sitting down to watch it? Meaning, is that only revealed at the end? But no, that's not the case. And I think it becomes all the more beautiful and poignant because we experience joy and sadness at different times. And really, we get to experience them twice. And the last thing I have to say about that is anyone who questions Harold Penter's prowess, you're already on the losing team. I think it works for me then and now because this is a story about memory, essentially, and so it suits the material. It provides a clarity by casting everything in hindsight. It's 2020, so we remain clear-eyed about what is happening throughout the whole thing. David Jones, the director, tells an interesting story kind of about that. During the rehearsal process, they decided that they were actually going to read through the play in actual chronological order, not as it's presented. 
and as an exercise, they realized it completely falls flat. It just doesn't work. The structure is what gives it its shape and its meaning. So we begin with the end, and it's a very upscale English opening sequence, woodwind quartet and everything. Everything about it, to me, feels like Harold Pinter, though that could just be confirmation bias on my part. But these houses, the weather, everything feels like that. Even in this opening sequence that doesn't feel or behave like any other sequence in the movie. We view it from a distance, without the benefit of his distinct dialogue in this case. It's the aftermath of a party breaking up, as seen through the windows, no sound. We're introduced to Hodge and Kingsley's characters trading slaps dramatically. She hits him first, then he retaliates, quickly followed by their son coming into the room, which I think is a great touch. In retrospect, which is how we view everything in this film, it's not an accident to me which child of their two appears. Everything in their relationship as we know it is about games and leverage, and their son, as we will discover, is an extension of that. I like that we are literally on the outside looking in. There's no sound at all, which is really unexpected. And I also immediately like this interpretation. The use of the naturalness of the setting and the use of the camera, making this something completely different than theater. Yes, it was a lot of location work, so it feels extremely lived in. Which makes me wonder, is it a measure of success to say that it doesn't feel stage-bound? Because with a play this good, you could do a filmed version of that, and it would still be excellent. I do enjoy, for this specific purpose, that it does not feel like a filmed play. And I credit all parties involved especially David Jones here, whom I was not familiar with. You mentioned that he was primarily a theater director. He actually started in TV, and he really credited that depth of experience working in serious drama on television with helping him find his legs here in film. And this was David Jones' film debut, which I think was pretty auspicious as well. And even with that structure we talked about, this doesn't play like a sort of extended flashback. It really works on its own. And I learned that David Jones also had a background in acting, and he felt that that was also integral to his directing. And he, along with Pinter, were dedicated to really looking at the structure and not simply adapting it beat by beat. He went with his gut reactions, scene by scene. And they both pointed out that the original architecture of the play didn't change. And it already had that heft behind it. But if you've seen Pinter before, which I haven't, strangely enough, but I'm familiar with the work in general, critical assessments of it, tempo is precisely written down. And he has famous Pinter pauses. And David Jones and the actors were all about finding what happens between the lines. Well, Pinter obviously also wrote the screenplay. And he had to, I think, with something this personal... How could you leave it to someone else? But it makes me marvel at the fact that he could go in to something that was so painful, I would assume, and dig into that again and again and rework it and refine it and get to the most traumatic essence of this experience just by handling it over and over and over again. I find it fascinating. Reading accounts at the time Specifically, Roger Ebert attended basically sort of a press conference that Harold Pinter oddly was at, and he went table to table 
chatting with journalists and answering their questions. The producer, Sam Spiegel, was really making kind of a big deal of the personal background of this story. So leave it to a producer. I guess he's kind of the analog of the parts of the publishing industry that Pinter was railing against, too? I think you're right. But Harold Pinter played that off and said, no, this really isn't too much of a biographical story. <laughs> How could he have said that? But we know more now than we did then. Let's get into the meat of the betrayal story. I think it's telling that this next scene, the images that we first see here are of a scrapyard before we move over to where our scene actually takes place inside this pub. This is where we meet Emma and Jerry. And the gist here is beyond the awkwardness of what is obviously a shared history that is not a shared present, is about time and the passage of it, how it changes how one feels, and the setup of this faulty memory and repetition. I love the use of language. Well, we begin a little bit in the dark, and you referred to this wondering how long it's going to be before we find out the particulars of this situation. It only takes a few moments to establish that they were obviously lovers, and they last met two years ago after having been involved for seven years. He asks after Robert, the husband. There's this strained politeness. He even refers to the rigid and absurd rules by which these meetings are supposed to operate. And what we're observing, to begin with, is what's left when the spark dies, therefore the scrapyard. I don't know about you, but I was really struck by the amount of time and looking at these people who, at that point, are only in their mid to later 30s, about 35 and 40, respectively. When you talk about seven years for an affair, two years since it's been over, that's nine years, a quarter to a fifth of their entire life. That's massive. And their lives and families are so intertwined. And now Emma announces that her marriage is over as of last night. And as of last night, Robert, her husband, knows about their affair. Well, he is shocked and dismayed by this. I think... It's so interesting what you see on display here. There's still care here between the two of them, but it feels like self-preservation overrides everything else, those feelings completely. It's just as much to me, it seems, a feeding of the ego. When she asks, do you think of me? It just makes me think everyone remembers in their own way. I remember being taken with this right away. This sort of wistfulness, it seems so adult. Surveying the debris of your life was something I had no experience with at that point in my life. I was 13. There was this impenetrability to that sort of grown-up mystery. I knew I was supposed to be feeling something very specific when they say, we aren't there anymore, talking about the flat they rented. And I was just really determined to figure out what that was. She's still carrying on like they did, it seems like, with Casey, an author that Jerry represents. This is all one big incestuous pile, it feels like. You mentioned how intertwined their families are, but there's also artists, their representatives. So in addition to the romantic relationship at the center, I feel like Pinter is also getting in his shots at the literary circles that he traveled in. A bit of faulty memory, like you refer to, Jerry says nobody knew. I think he really overestimates his cleverness. Part of this confession that she makes, she reveals to him that Robert, her husband, he's done the same philandering now for years. 
And in response to all of this, his self-preservation rises to meet hers, I think, evenly by clinging to the memory of what all that felt like. I may not have understood it then, but the thing that I'm struck by now as an adult are the selfish things that they get upset about, especially him. He's the character who spends the most time talking about his emotions, but seems to have the least access to them or to be the most callow. Well, you saying that makes me wonder if I am hanging too much on the idea that this is thinly veiled nonfiction. Because to me, I've always read this clearly that Jeremy Irons is Pinter's avatar in the film, but I keep coming up against the way he treats this character as written. There are things that happen again and again with Iron's character that make me doubt how self-aware he is. So how can you accurately portray that if that was you at the time? Is it only through the benefit of hindsight that he is able to do that? Now, this is a memory play. Pinter wrote a few of those, and it was really focusing on the characteristics of memory and that what he called quicksand-like nature of memory. It's ambiguous. It's mysterious. It's wrong sometimes. Playing also with his perception of himself at the time and now. I do think he's written elements of himself into the other characters. I think most playwrights probably do that. I think it also plays into the complex question of what is betrayal, who has been betrayed who is betraying whom. Pinter wrote this about one lover while living with another and estranged from his wife. The affair that he wrote about took place from 1962 to 1969. He took up with the second woman, Antonia Fraser, in 1975 for five years and wrote this while they were living together in 1977. They eventually married in 1980, and I also think it's quite interesting that Pinter and his wife Vivian Merchant met Fraser together all the way back in 1969. There's just no way for this episode not to be a little bit on the gossipy side if we are to put this in its proper context and understand the circumstances of its creation and what it's commenting upon. You're right, it seems that with Fraser, he found the one. Finally, as they later married and lived, for all intents and purposes, happily ever after. He did say he was not able to write a happy play, but he did make a happy life. That is decidedly not the case for Vivian Merchant. She seemed to suffer mightily in the wake of having her life upended this way. She succumbed to the effects of alcoholism and died in 1982, a few years after the play premiered, but before the film was finished. And I think often about the prospect of her having gone to see this play. What must this be like to watch as a principal participant? Is anything off limits? I guess the object lesson here is don't involve yourself with someone or even be in the orbit of an incredible playwright or author because your life is fodder for the stage or the screen. I'm still trying to decide if her analog in the story not even actually appearing in person, was a final insult or a misguided attempt at protecting her in some way. Do you have any thoughts on that? I wonder the same thing as you, because like we mentioned, there are still even more parties involved. Discarded husbands. And think about their children going to see this. What must they think? 
And it's going to live on forever. It's never not going to be in production somewhere, I think, at this point. It's such a legendary play by now that anyone who was involved or even descendants that are still alive are going to feel the echoes of this thing for as long as there is theater. You make it sound terrible (laughs) when you say it like that. I still do come down on the side of a play is still a play. There is still some working around with motivations and people and characters. And I hope at least at some point there was some attempt to protect the innocent, as it were. But only the people who were there know what actually happened. And I think the use of that memory play is a perfect way to capture that feeling. So now, at last, we're going to hear from the husband in the story. It's the great Ben Kingsley. Oddly, the first thing that strikes me here is that he has hair, which I'm not used to seeing. I'm still trying to get a sense of who these people are. As Robert goes to meet Jerry at Jerry's house, Jerry's extremely nervous, agitated. Robert just seems to be oddly staring. He seems quiet and dangerous. I don't know if it's because this is the first time I was made aware of him, but Ben Kingsley, ever since this, has always felt like coiled violence to me. I saw this before I saw Gandhi even though Gandhi came out the year prior. So it always felt weird when I put together that that was him. His character in Sexy Beast was the kind of character I had been expecting him to play for 20 years. I think I was betrayed, get it, by seeing Sexy Beast first, reverse order, and so it seemed perfect that he was cast here. The jousting begins in earnest here, and the writing in this scene is impeccable. The questions raised for me as far as which of them gets to decide what's important and when, are really fascinating. Especially when you understand how incidental Emma is to what happens between these two men. Kingsley says, don't be sorry, reacting to Iron's inherent insincerity in his apology. And then, like a thunderbolt, we find out the revelation did not happen last night. It happened four years ago. Were you as taken aback by that as he was, as I was when I first saw it, I remember it being a terrible shock. The same for me. I keep thinking, what does it take for a person, really any of these three, to maintain that level of deception? In retrospect, I guess it seems silly and arbitrary of me to be surprised at one type of betrayal and not another. What do you feel like, though, is the motivation for her lie? Is it a measure of fighting back? at one or both of these men to whom she doesn't matter as much as she feels like she should? I think like with all of this, which is incredibly beautiful and stunning and complex, by the way, there are multiple motivations. I think one initially was to protect Jerry because he needs some protection, just simply based on his immaturity is why I say that. I think it was to protect herself. At that point, four years ago, we know after having seen the film, that she was still completely all in on the affair. It then makes me wonder the most about Robert being sort of this wild card, this penchant for violence. Would it have pushed something in a different direction? Or does she know, which I'm interpolating here, that Robert is basically a sociopath? So it wouldn't matter to him in that same way and he could maintain this friendship with Jerry? Or does she know that truly... Jerry is more important to Robert than Emma is. 
When Jerry finds out the actual timetable of events, the landscape changes immediately. Robert has had a long time to process this. This gives him the upper hand, which may be the thing that matters to him the most in his entire life, I think. I love that point. Thank you for saying that. We're already acutely aware of time because of the structure of the film, and now Pinter plays even further with this idea, pulling the chronological rug out from under Jerry. Time is central to the way that we process and understand these things, the way that memory affects our lives. Significantly also, I want to point out here, the lying also continues to Jerry's wife. No one's inclination is to ever be completely honest with anyone. I want to talk about the language again here. I specifically love how I thought you knew that meaning can change multiple times in this scene. The linguistic trick I like here is basically how words are little flick knives. I lived with her. In the afternoons, he replies, each of them trying to diminish the other and using her to do it. Robert admits to hitting her, and I am immediately led to think about that in relation to his infidelities. What's the timeline for those things? Which of them was done in response to the other? Is that something that they use to justify their behavior to themselves? The betrayal, that's not only of each other, it's of themselves. So do they use these instances as fuel for that, that allows them to carry on this way? These stories that they continue to tell themselves and how those change over time. Which is something that comes up in the very next scene as we move backwards. We next see their breakup in the flat that they rented. Never is the word that's repeated here often. Home and children and imagination. And we have this setup of this faulty memory of Jerry's centering around Emma and Robert's child, Charlotte. Is he refusing to remember? Is he lying to himself both of those things? Is it responsibility or culpability that he's concerned with? Based on what we know of him as a character, I lean towards culpability. To me, he was never as invested as she was based on how much they remember or can recall or the way they recall it. Or is that just my interpretation? Does it read that way to you? I'm with you on that. And then it makes the beginning all the more poignant when we look at the ecstasy that initially kicked this all off. Well, at this point, life has interfered in their arrangement. And he outlines his circumstances as if hers aren't the exact same. They talk about the difficulty of nights versus afternoons. We see this tablecloth that she brought from Venice. There's this terribly sad notion of the flat sitting empty all the time. He seems all over the place. He brings up love, even though it seems to me he feels this less intensely. So it's completely ironic, like you referred to, that it was his declaration of overwhelming ardor that started all this. I feel like he's making her do all the hard work in this scene. She's the one that has to make the end of this concrete when she asks what he will do with the contents of this flat. I think it's great that Emma is the most adult character in terms of the person who seems to take the responsibility and who is tasked with the most. She has to take care of the kids, have the job, take care of the home, and then maintain two loves. As you said, she's the one who makes the final declaration when I don't think Jerry would ever say the words out loud. And I'm still so struck by the time that has passed. Again, these are not kids. 
This wasn't a thing that happened over the course of a couple of weeks. This is seven years. Longer than many marriages even go. Where did they imagine this was going to eventually end up? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's something that I've thought a lot about, too, for a long time, since I very first saw this. This scene was another one of those experiences that I marked in my head as something I'm going to encounter later in life. Specifically, that feeling when you know it's the last time you're going to leave a place. Facing the death of love or lust or whatever it was is just as real as facing a literal death or a similar loss. We've made absolutely the right decision, she says. Which of them really believes that, though? You know, I'm thinking about it, the character that I came to know Patricia Hodge from, and that's the Portia of the Chambers from Rumpel of the Bailey, the TV series. I think about her character in Rumpel of the Bailey, if she had chucked out both Robert and Jerry and then picked someone else that basically she could run. The truth of this being the right decision doesn't make it any less painful. And I think you're right on the money when you say seven years is a long time. It's a lot to get out of it. What's a reasonable expectation for an arrangement like this? Why does this relationship even end? Is it inconvenience? Or does it imply that there is always going to be a natural diminishing of attraction? I feel like it's a bit of a conservative standpoint that they default to family and work as being the most valuable things to cling to, especially when Pinter did not strictly adhere to that in his real life. I'm with you. Those feel almost like excuses, even though they're valid points. It feels like what they would say in place of saying, either I never loved you, I don't love you anymore, or I'm just kind of bored with this, or any variation of those emotions. I would also love to see the production that's happening right now in the UK with Tom Hiddleston, because from everything I read about it, it seems like the actress who plays Emma in that production is able to find a way to convey the love of both of these men. And that's something that I want to talk about a bit later as well, their relationship, their marriage, because David Jones said something really interesting that the affair is written, the marriage is implied. You can imagine this was a lot for me to take in as a kid. Absolutely. The precise circumstances of why it made such an impression on me. I was 13 when I first saw it. As a freshly minted teenager, I was wanting grown-up things. I really longed for adult experiences, even traumatic ones, maybe especially traumatic ones. Anything that would be mine because I had decided it, not because I was being told to do it by someone. That seems like in character. Yeah. That works. This obviously included things I could not have possibly fully understood at the time. That did not matter, though. Growth doesn't happen without reach exceeding grasp. Was that folly at the time? I don't know. Do I understand this any better at 48 rather than 13? I don't know that that's the case either. 30 years later, I'm a little ashamed of myself because I don't always feel as sharp or as curious as I was then or sometimes that I even want to be now. Lately, a lot of things seem dumb, myself included sometimes. That feeling that I know less now than I knew then? It's a film that still has a powerful effect on me. It's no exaggeration to say that I thought about this a lot in the years afterward. I even wrote a cycle of poems about it. I only ever did that in response to two things, this and James Joyce's The Dead, both likely for the same capital R romantic reasons. 
Can you relate to what I'm talking about, though, being that kid and wanting to move on from this stage in your life? Absolutely. I think mine started around age seven, probably, (laughs) and maybe still continues. And I'm assuming, like me, your family and friends weren't necessarily involved in a hotbed of changing relationships and dynamics and adulterous affairs, though probably some of them were. Statistically speaking, that would have to be the case, but nothing like that that I can remember directly affected my circle of friends or family. You're right. There was definitely divorce, and I was aware of things like that. I wasn't trying to make sense of my own surroundings with those feelings. I just knew that there was something in me that wanted something more. To feel something. To know something. To say something. To experience something. Well, this was definitely one of the formative experiences of my viewing life. It opened so many doors for me, it felt like. It showed me so many things that one of these days... I hope to understand. And it probably also appealed to me greatly in the sense that it felt like a puzzle. This structure of it, instead of it just being a straightforward telling of what they thought, in retrospect, might have been a flat story, the way that I had to work backwards through it, it felt like a challenge on top of everything else. I also have to think, though, correct me if I'm wrong, because you did mention this inspired you to write poetry, you had to have also been attracted to the poetry in this story. And by that I mean, you see all of these other films, and people don't speak the same way in each one. This had to have struck something in your brain as being different and special. It's funny that you say that, because I know it definitely worked that way, but when I think back to how I felt about it and the things that I remembered, it was very impressionistic. It left me with feelings, just snatches of things that I couldn't quite put my finger on, none of it centered directly on the words as written. I didn't, for example, have favorite lines that I came back to again and again. To me, the poetry of it was much more about these strange feelings it generated in me, at least at that point. When I look at it now, I definitely appreciate those pauses and the meter and just how pointed some of these things that they say to each other are, and how many multiple meanings they're freighted with. You're right, and I don't mean to overestimate or underestimate you as a young viewer. I'm thinking about the first time that I read and saw Tennessee Williams and realizing this is something completely different. Pinter was much more my style, this cold, cerebral touch that he has. You're more of the Tennessee Williams hothouse flower, I think, right? (laughs) My mother was in the Air Force, and then she got the vapors and couldn't continue. No, I am not. Thank you. This next scene, I really enjoy, and I think I found something in it that made a lot of sense to me. We're at Robert and Emma's house, and Jerry has come over. Emma is bathing Ned, and Jerry and Robert have this discussion about, ostensibly, the differences in boy and girl babies, and Jerry expresses, kind of on the nose, but I really liked this, Boy babies are just maybe more anxious to face the world. It then changes a bit because Emma comes into the scene. And I start to focus on Robert, and I start to focus on Emma, and I'm wondering, does Robert seem odd because of this facade that he's carrying on? Or does he just hate Emma? And possibly, does Emma just hate both he and Jerry? And love them at the same time? Interesting that that's what you fix on, because the note I made is that at every step in this scene, Jerry reveals his disregard for women. But you're certainly right about 
who knows what and how much that weighs. Every word is loaded with knowledge of this situation. Their fencing feels constant. Robert always knowing more than Irons, and in this case, Emma also knowing more than him as well. And then we have this remarkable, barely controlled tirade that Kingsley goes on about having no women at the squash game. I feel like Robert is staking his claim in two ways here. Attempting to assert control over his wife and manipulating Jerry back into being his partner in this very specific ritual. The important thing that I take away from that is that one takes no precedence over the other. They seem to weigh exactly the same to him. It's all gamesmanship. It's not passionless, exactly. He's very passionate about the final tally on the scoreboard, literal and figurative. It may be the only thing that he's passionate about. We don't see passion very much, period. It's fairly prim as a film, especially for one about an illicit affair. There is this de-emphasizing of the carnal. Why do you think that happens? This whole stiff upper lip, no sex please, we're British, or is it something else? I think it's something else. They have a flat, Jerry and Emma, but the emphasis, like you're saying, it's so interesting to think about it now, is on the tablecloth that she buys, the furnishings domesticity in some way or another it is it's a relationship more than excuse my language fucking so you're saying noises off isn't your favorite pinter play <laughs> pinter didn't actually write that i worked on a production of noises off by yeah. the way how was that for you i was the person who had to supervise the rotating of the stage which was actually pretty interesting but i'll tell that story later speaking of sort of it reminds me of something that jeremy iron said about Harold Pinter, which is that Pinter has a very tangential mind. I think that's a really apt way of putting this, describing a person who could construct this. Well, we continue to work our way backwards, and we next arrive one year earlier to that in Venice. And we have this confrontation in this really lavish hotel room. There's a book that Emma's reading by a client of Jerry's, which you heard in our opening scene that Robert says the subject of is betrayal. They have a slight disagreement on this matter, but it's just a way for Robert to open the door to get to what he really wants to talk about right now. It definitely seemed like he had an agenda. He was pushing this. There was this odd bluffness that becomes more manic. So it seems like he's goading her into saying the thing that I assumed at this point he'd already known, which is the revelation of her affair with Jerry. The thing I like most about this is that it's not just the affair that's exposed. This pivotal scene exposes her infidelity to both of them, to Robert by virtue of the affair and to Jerry, because we get this confirmation that it's true that she deceived him about the chronology of her confession. There are a couple of other things I find fascinating here. Story-wise, it ended this question that I had in my mind about whether Ned was Robert's child. It turns out, at least she says that he is, and I do believe her, Ned was conceived while Jerry was in America, a further betrayal almost. It makes me then wonder if her other child is his, but I, I don't think so. I don't think the timeline works for that. But it constantly makes me wonder. And this is also where Robert, I think, tellingly says that he always liked Jerry more than he liked Emma. And he does that odd head bump to her. She seems to be trying to fathom him the same way that I am. 
these cat and mouse games that he's playing that verge to me on the sadistic, is he entitled to these? Are they justified? Does that depend on when his transgressions were? I don't think any of it is a legitimate way of acting. It doesn't matter if it was provoked or not. There's always an opportunity to stop it. But of course, it makes for an incredible acting and viewing experience. I think, too, this goes back to that thing that David Jones had said, the love affair is written, the marriage is implied. And Ben Kingsley and Patricia Hodge worked very closely together to try to get this sense of what their marriage was. He says he didn't suspect before the arrival of the letter, and I believe that. Do you? No, I do not. Okay, why not? I think he's way too smart, and I think he was cooking up this head of steam for a while. Now, it may have proven what he had already been formulating in his mind, but I think it was already there. So all of these things that are playing across Kingsley's face, the fact that it seems like he can scarcely believe it, you feel like that's not that he didn't know, but that she would dare to do this to him? Is that what's registering? I only just came up with this thought. Okay. And this goes back to something that we'll see at the end, which is the beginning. I think this is the moment at which he decided to care. Well, then I have another question for you. Does her affair with Jerry actually allow this marriage to exist longer than it would have if she doesn't have this diversion and had to focus exclusively on her married life? Would she find that position untenable much earlier than she does? And does she even truly prefer one of them over the other? I ask because once all is said and done, none of them seem to reflect on any of this as particularly agonizing. Something we haven't talked about yet, and I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, I wonder the time period in which it was set, when the events were taking place, too, how much that plays into the story. It's not like we're seeing some big female self-actualization story. It does make me think what age you enter into things emotionally, intellectually. Because you did point out, and I did not think of this from the first time I watched it on, that when she got involved with this, she must have been 24, 25. Absolutely. That's a kid. It is. And she's still an incredibly young woman. And these changes in her life, she specifically talks about her job. That's relatively new for her. I think we're meant to guess and make our own interpretations. Pinter says that he's not an analyst. What he does is creative. It's not the same part of your brain. He's not analyzing those characters intellectually. He's writing fiction. It comes out of his fingertips, he says. And he was, at the time, when he first wrote the play, more interested in the friendship than in the affair, necessarily. And I think now, because of my time in life, I'm so much more interested in the marriage part of this, the part that might reflect back on him in different ways, than necessarily the affair part. And then we're going to see an even more, to me, interesting side of her. She's back in London, meeting Jerry at their flat. And it struck me that she seems almost triumphant here. Is that because Robert finally knows? She doesn't have to hold that back from him. But she continues the deception to Jerry. She doesn't tell him that she's revealed this huge thing. She also deceives him around the story of going to this Torcello city. Why she didn't go. And I love that she uses the word house here for their flat. It seems to me in her mind something has shifted. 
I just love that they work in the second nosy landlady gag right here. <laughs> Boing. <laughs> it's private. Irons, his character is just consistently completely in the dark, it feels like. But I disagree that she feels completely liberated because clearly you can tell she is alarmed about the prospect of Jerry going to meet Robert and what Robert might have in mind for that meeting. It seemed more pleased than liberated, I would say. It okay. does feel like something has changed to me. I wonder with Jerry, is it compartmentalization? Is he just simple, for lack of a better word? I think there is a little bit of that, but that's something that I want to get to in a scene coming up in a little bit. Sure. For now, we get a repetition of this story. It's repetition to us. It's the first time that it occurs for them of him throwing the child up in the air and everyone laughing in the kitchen. And it's such a nice touch that her correction about whose kitchen it was is tender this time. They haven't grown impatient and unforgiving of each other yet. What's not tender necessarily is this meeting coming up when Robert and Jerry have lunch. How was Venice? He asks him innocently enough. And I love watching Kingsley amusedly, furiously observing him. Jerry has to ask three times how it was before he gets an answer, and then he gets an answer. That answer comes in Kingsley's rising irritation with everything that's happening in his life, it feels like. Saying but not saying how desperately unhappy he is. He can't seem to express it. This is when Jerry seems to be trying to fathom him. We're also presented with evidence in this scene that Emma repeatedly lies to Jerry for reasons that I don't think line up with some of the things that we already put forth. I don't think it has anything to do with protecting anyone in particular. I think it might just be a matter of convenience for her sometimes. You already said it. The language is central and the jousting is fierce right here, although Jerry may not know exactly how fierce it is. None of that is any surprise, considering that it's Harold Pinter. Does the verbosity of this make it hard to connect with for the viewer? For the average viewer, I should say, I guess? Well, I'm not average, so I can't <laughs> speak to that. Honestly, I don't know. It certainly doesn't for me. It draws me in. It keeps me there. Just like with that reverse chronology, it's not a gimmick. It's the heart and soul of this story. It means that we know more than the characters do at every given moment. It means that even when they're happy, it's painful to watch. That feeling comes up a lot in this next scene for me. We go back two more years, and they're back in the flat, and Emma tells him that she ran into his wife, Judith, whom we never see in person. And before they can even say it, I am thinking about how their tendencies might lead them to suspect others' infidelities. But... He's not concerned with that. Do you think she knows about us? His tendencies lead me to believe that he underestimates his wife. He's irritated about this admirer that she has, and the hypocritical bullshit and justification are just off the charts here. It's the one time we hear them actually consider whether they could change their lives, too. And it just feels impossible to them, and to me as a viewer for them. We as the viewer have to be the ones to sit there to think about all of those implications, but they just can't really verbally go there. What that would truly mean to break up all of these homes, and then all of these permutations about other spouses having affairs with other spouses and other friends, on and on and on. 
Most telling is when she does announce she's pregnant by her own husband. That does make me think that everyone at some degree in this story has to compartmentalize. Well, their conjecture about Judith and then her revelation about being pregnant at the end of this scene, yeah, it all comes together and coalesces around this idea about the elastic boundaries of the idea of faithfulness and the myriad things that that label can be applied to. This world that Pinter establishes clearly carries the inherent implication that everyone does it. Betrayal, that is. But he doesn't moralize about it. That's not what he's interested in. That's convenient for him as he's a serial adulterer, (laughs) I guess. But Jerry, as his avatar, feels clueless about all of that. Do you feel like that is Pinter unintentionally giving himself away or intentionally excoriating himself with that English self-deprecation and all. I do want to say, I don't think he does anything accidentally. I think it's more the latter. I think he's just pointing out his own immaturity and inaccessibility to his own intellectual honesty. It makes me wonder how Pinter ultimately felt about Bakewell in this time in their lives. There are no rose-tinted reminiscences here. It feels particularly unsentimental, which is a little ironic considering the feelings that it generated in me. I was just going to ask before you said that, do you think that that's what attracted you to it? That the adultness was the unsentimentality? That it wasn't rose-colored? Versus other more immature, typically romantic, quote-unquote, things? I guess this was that period where I was looking for something that seemed more real, even with the romantic things, like Gregory's Girl versus teen relationship things that were being spoon-fed to me that I didn't connect with on any level. I just wanted to accelerate through all of it as fast as I could and get to complete understanding. Get to your own house and affairs? (laughs) Basically. Although it sure didn't seem like much fun. No, it really doesn't. We still haven't gotten to that initial spark. We're about to see the forerunner to that. We're going to go back in time two more years. And we're at Jerry's house. They're alone because his family is gone. They're stealing moments. What I like here, this reminds me that there's this sense in this film that there's no point at which anyone can ever be alone. You're right, which occurs to me for the first time as you say that. This is why I like what she does here so much. The way this is cut, it nicely juxtaposes the first time that we as an audience see her listening to him on the phone with his wife. It puts that right next to the prior news of her announcing her pregnancy. What she does here moves me so much, and I can't even exactly put my finger on it. She explores the house by herself while he is on the phone, seemingly considering her role in all of this. You're right, it's the first time that we get to see any of them engage in solo reflection. It feels like the only moment in the film when any of the characters take time to consider the larger implications of their actions, and how they might affect other people. Pinter didn't moralize, but he also didn't studiously avoid the idea that there are consequences to this. There's always something in the way when your relationship is somehow illegitimate. It's like it's cursed, burdened, impure. You cannot be completely free. You have to work to steal time together, but you have to work even harder to steal time for yourself. Is it the idea that Total honesty is the only true freedom? 
We've certainly seen evidence of that. This thing that we see in her aspect after she comes clean in Venice. It's a small step in that direction and it feels like a sea change. Contrast that with this moment that we have at the end of this scene where she takes two phone calls in a row, one surprisingly from her husband, one from her lover, each one of them saying, it's me, to announce themselves. One of those instances is completely distressing and one is exhilarating. And one of the things I thought of, this is such a different time. How many times have we spoken on the phone, period? (laughs) It's true. And this is also when we see them go to rent the flat for the first time. And he seems like he is unhappy from the beginning. This is not for him. This is for her. Is it his immaturity that makes this objectionable to him? It's tying him down in some way. What motivates this behavior on his part? I didn't think about that. I was thinking that it's more that he can't really play act well at this time during their affair. He can't maintain that much deception, even to a stranger. He really is the weakest of the three characters. And I don't mean that in the sense that he's not written well. I mean, he is cowardly and shallow and has no idea what he really wants. Is this just the more upper-class literary version of Hugh Grant's character in About a Boy, basically? You need to get off About a Boy. You need to stop slagging that movie off. That's one that I don't think we're ever going to do on this show. Or we can do it. And there will be fireworks. No, thank you. Speaking of fireworks, we are now at the end, which is the beginning. We've come full circle back to a party at Robert and Emma's house. Jerry is waiting for Emma. And this is when he declares his feelings. He's been watching her all night. He's half crazed is the thing that I wrote down. She's trying to fathom him. She stops him, but she lets him continue. He's clearly planned this to some degree, and she's intrigued by the idea, maybe, that he seems to know what she'll do, implying that he understands her in some way that her husband doesn't? Is it also the more facile motive of someone who's interested in me, excited by me? It's definitely the most bold and passionate moment of the entire film, And you're right, she doesn't immediately tell him to stop this. So I'm wondering, how long has he been thinking about this? And I'm also thinking a lot about the seductive power of language. That skill is formidable. And fighting that off, immunity to flattery, it comes with a significant price. You have to be completely cynical to completely protect yourself from making this mistake. Your default position has to be that everyone is insincere, or want something from you, if you mean to avoid this, so it's a hard and unpleasant world that you're forced to live in. Doesn't that also imply that you would have to not want anything else yourself that you've not expressed or are not getting? Well, if you live in this world that Pinter has made, everyone wants something else, apparently. And boy, are they getting it. And Robert is a part of this from the beginning. He interrupts them. Jerry declares this to Robert that I was telling your wife she's so beautiful. And Robert just leaves. I like that we end, not with words, but with this physical touch, this understanding that they seem to make with their hands. Yes, they have their first kiss, but they don't linger on that. What they linger on is her acquiescing to this touch, clasping left hands Wedding rings prominently displayed for us to watch as the credits roll. 
And so we've achieved a film that has a happy and an unhappy ending at the same time. Again, it's the structure that really does that for us. The structure means that we know more than the characters do about their outcomes at any given moment through the entire film. It begins with what should be the saddest moment, lovers no longer connected and somewhat adrift. But the terrible irony of all that is, because of the structure, what should be the most thrilling and hopeful moment, this declaration of infatuation that comes at the end, becomes the most melancholy and torturous moment for the audience because we know how it all turns out. It's interesting, too, and I hadn't, again, thought about it really until this moment. We're still not really reflecting on the other unhappy thing, which is the dissolution of a marriage. This is a great film. Thank you for showing it to me. You're welcome. It's one that I've loved for a long, long time. And the good news is everybody can go right out and watch this, right? (laughs) It's not the good news. Once again, I've chosen something that is almost impossible to see because it only exists currently as of this recording, on VHS, which is criminal. I think you can watch big chunks of it on YouTube, but boy, Mm. that's not the same. You can't see the whole thing. I've already tried. I've been looking for years, and it's not out there anywhere. I had to resort to the gray market to get a DVD rip of a VHS for hours. Thanks, Cole. (laughs) What have we not picked over? Which bones have we left undisturbed at this point? I think just a couple of things, in particular, the title. How does it apply? I really love the simplicity and perfection of this word as the title for this film and play. The constantly shifting emphasis of the different points on this triangle, it really subverts the idea that there's one central act of betrayal, which you might think coming into it. It also makes me think about how much weight the idea of betrayal can actually carry in an environment in which it becomes standard operating procedure for everyone. Apparently, it's as casual and, in fact, occurs more frequently than a game of squash. Does that go a long way to also confirming why you chose it? I chose it because it's devastating, first and foremost. That's something that I apparently need, that's necessary to me. If you survey the things that I watch the most, you'll know. I don't know that it will affect anyone else this way, especially if they aren't 13 and watching it for the first time, though you can speak to that experience. How did it affect you? It was pretty devastating for me at 43. Ironically, I guess it is inspiring to me in its attempts to disillusion me is basically the best way I can express it. Give me more of that any time. Those were heady days for me. These afternoons of going to my grandmother's house after school in the early 80s and devouring everything that was available in the fledgling cable TV era? Meemaw, can we watch Betrayal again? (laughs) there is no Meemaw. We do not do that in our family. We didn't do it in my family either. It wasn't all gloom and doom for me, let me say that. In my quest for figuring out how to be a grown-up, I learned a lot about how adults have a good time while they navigate these choppy waters from Alan Alda's Four Seasons. (laughs) It's the first time I encountered Sandy Dennis, who would become one of my all-time favorites. Of all the experiences that I gleaned from cable television, though, betrayal remains the most potent in my development. So does that mean you chose The Four Seasons as your recommendation? No. In fact, for my recommendation, I'm going to double down on my Harold Pinter scripted vehicles for Ben Kingsley that are still criminally not available on DVD and recommend Turtle Diary from 1985, directed by John Irvin and starring Ben Kingsley, 
Lantern favorite Glenda Jackson, and Michael Gambon. It's Pinter's adaptation of a novel by Russell Hoban, and it's about a children's author and a bookstore employee that bond over their fondness for sea turtles at the London Zoo. They concoct a scheme with the zookeeper to set the turtles free, and in the process they find out what they need to liberate themselves as well. It's really a lovely film, and in mood and tone, it may be the antidote that you need after betrayal makes you feel awful about life. It's not available in any format but VHS either, but at least as of this recording, some enterprising soul has put the whole thing on YouTube in its entirety, so you can watch that. It's every bit as sharply observed as Betrayal, but this is from the period in Pinter's life when he was finally satisfied with his romantic situation, and you can definitely tell the difference. It's much more in line with something like, say, Bill Forsyth, in terms of how gentle it is with his characters, while still feeling true. Plus, it has a turtle heist. Where else are you going to see that? What about you? I probably pick something equally inaccessible, and that is The Song of Lunch from 2010. It's an adaptation of Christopher Reed's poem of the same name, and it premiered during National Poetry Month. It was directed by Neil McCormick with Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson. It's unusual again in that there's very little spoken dialogue. The action is sort of an enactment of different incidents, and it's described in a poetic monologue. It's the story of a reunion of two former lovers in a restaurant for the titular lunch. Rickman's character, only referred to as he, is a book editor who's also an unsuccessful poet. Thompson's character, who is she, is his former lover. She left him long ago to marry a successful novelist. I chose it because it's also an adaptation of a work in a form that might be difficult to translate to the screen, but isn't. The relationship also reminds me somewhat of Jerry and Emma, though I think she, in The Song of Lunch, has thrived more than he has. It's a pleasure to see Rickman and Thompson together. Always a pleasure to see Alan Rickman work, and it's more his story here. There's also a fun meta aspect to the work in that. The book jacket, featuring the she character's successful author husband, is of Emma Thompson's actual husband, actor Greg Wise. Probably me and 10 other people saw it. (laughs) Yeah, this one is new to me. I'm excited to see it, though, because you're right. I could watch Alan Rickman do anything. Absolutely. So once again, that's two great recommendations. Turtle Diary and The Song of Lunch. And that brings us to the end of episode 102. First and foremost, we want to say a special thank you to our dear friend Laura Cannon of the Fatal Femmes podcast for increasing her Patreon pledge. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, over 50 of those by now, and those come out on the Mondays between regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms and you can find us. Our new podcast network, The 25th Frame, has made some excellent additions recently, and I would like to focus on one of those this time, and that is Magnificent Obsession, hosted by Alicia Malone. 
A lot of people probably know her from her work as a host on Turner Classic or from her excellent books on film history. We are so thrilled to have her as part of the network. Her show focuses on interviews with film industry professionals, how they got their start in the business, and what the movies mean to them. So if you like a good mix of geeking out about film and then nuts and bolts insider stuff, this is the perfect show for you. One of our favorites, Jim Cummings, did an episode not long ago. So if you liked Thunder Road as much as we did, that episode is a great place to start. But really, there's not a bad episode in the bunch. So check out Magnificent Obsession wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Eric Parkinson, Jesse Dampolo, Spencer Seams, Brian Sauer, Jeff Duncanson, Tim Lego, Mark Herney, Aaron West, Travis Trudell, John Cribbs, Jesse Athey, my dear sister Haley Rolaine, Scott Morris and Drew Tavendale from Fuds on Film, Chad Engelbert, Mike Scharf, Matt Gasteyer, Terry and Liz over at the Happily Cinemaried podcast, Doug McCambridge, Marcus Penn, Mickey Chaechi and the Three Friends podcast, and the We Cut Heads podcast, which is a great new podcast about Spike Lee's catalog. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so that we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. Thank you very much to the nice anonymous person that recently left us a five-star rating on iTunes. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Twenty-fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.